Make It Right, the manufacturing podcast. A global economy offers vast opportunity, but it also offers vast competition. And elevating your message above the global din just keeps getting harder. As a manufacturing leader, you're challenged by the day-to-day operations of the business and chasing sales targets, and in all likelihood, the marketing of your business isn't getting the attention it requires. Welcome to the Make It Right Podcast. I'm Janet Eastman, and this week on the show, we're going to break down that challenge and hopefully share some insights to help you evolve and elevate your B2B marketing strategy. Carmen Peary is the co-founder and lead marketing and sales counsel at Kula Partners, a marketing agency that helps B2B manufacturers develop digital experiences that transform how they engage with buyers, serve customers, and outpace the competition online. And I'm excited to talk to you, Carmen. So welcome to Make It Right. Janice, so wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So I know that you've done a lot of stuff in the way of marketing, but if you can just give us a bit of a background so we understand how broad your your experience is before we get into some of the marketing mistakes that uh, manufacturers are making. Yeah, sometimes I don't know if the uh, if the if the uh, experience or background is broader, if I've just been doing the same thing for uh, several decades. So <laughs> it feels like there's a lot of common threads, at least. But uh, I guess my 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 background, um, you know, I've been marketing pretty early on. I mean, I I, I convinced a television station in northern Maine uh, when I was in university. I convinced them that I wasn't going back to school. Uh, and that they should give me a job selling TV ads, and then I they did, uh, and uh, and I could fax all my orders into the station and stuff. So they actually didn't know uh, how many days I worked in the run of a week. Then I went back to school and still continued to sell TV ads for them. So um, I've been doing uh, I've been doing the marketing bit for 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 a while, I suppose, to give you a bit of uh, context. After that, I. Um, kind of the odd thing that I think kind of does really inform an awful lot of my approach, uh, especially to selling in some way, um, is I, I ran to be a, a member of the Legislative Assembly uh, here in Canada wow. um, when I was 23. Uh, um, and I, I lost by uh, 359 votes, if my memory serves. Um, and uh, but I always say that there's very few opportunities that you have in life, especially at that young age, to um, just kind of go door to door with nothing to sell but yourself. Um, and like you know, I always say when you're doing that, you can't sell on price, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you have to find different ways in and different um, ways to connect with people. Uh, and um, so that was, uh, I think, a, a trial by fire uh, at a young age that really did inform a lot of my career. I went from there to, uh, uh, well, just prior to that, actually, I had been a chief of staff uh, to a member of parliament, and I worked in the House of Commons for a while. And, uh, um, so I, I left that political uh, life behind and went back to marketing. And uh, But m- my goodness, I see a lot of parallels between them. Mm-hmm. And you know what, like you talk about, you talk about selling television ads and you talk about, you know, that door to door stuff when you're trying to get yourself elected, that those are probably two of the toughest selling things that you can possibly do. So you really did school yourself on what sells and what doesn't. So <laughs> you got a, you got a good kickoff to your marketing career. That's for sure. Yeah, it was funny. You know, I remember t- I was having a struggle selling TV ads, you know, and it just wasn't going about it right. And then it kind of clicked 
that if I didn't sell TV ads, but rather I sold marketing plans that had TV ads as a part of it, that I could sell all that, you know, sell that all day long. So uh, I guess that was a fairly uh, good early instruction for this agency business too, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. So from where, from where you sit, what is the single biggest marketing mistake manufacturers are making? Yeah. Sometimes it can seem like there are a lot of them. Um, uh, I, th I think, look, probably the, uh, the single biggest marketing mistake that manufacturers writ large are making is that they do not um, properly manage the marketing function. Um, they do not have uh, the proper KPIs in place. They do not have fully closed loop analytics in place around their marketing efforts. Um, we live in a day and age where it is quite possible to um, know to with a fairly de good degree of accuracy uh, the level of return you're getting on any specific part of your marketing spend, provided you've built the proper framework in place at the start to accommodate that and to give you that information. And uh, so many manufacturers are hiring uh, marketers, building out marketing teams, hiring agencies, doing uh, a wide number of things without that foundational uh, element in place to say, how are we going to know if this is a good spend or not? And, and it's harder even for manufacturers because it's not like the closed loop happens, um, you know, in two or three days. They can't do a new initiative and see it at the cash register uh, because it ran a sale this week. You know, for, for manufacturers, so often off a lot of them have um, a sales cycle that's more like 18, 24 months long or, or, or more. So, um, it, you know, it isn't always uh, an immediate uh, feedback to know if you're doing the right thing. Uh, so I think that's really where they, most manufacturers make the biggest mistake is that they just don't have the framework in place for marketing performance. Right, and as you say, if it takes 18 months to figure out if it's working or not, there's a lot of investment going on there to not really know if anything's really happening. Yeah, if, if your measure is to say, okay, I'm going to do this and I'm going to wait to see if I notice it on the bottom line and that bottom line can't possibly be impacted for 18 to 24 months, that's a silly way to approach it. Obviously, you have to look at other uh, items that are kind of leading indicators of, uh, of your success of, of any kind of change or pivot that you've made in your marketing. And of course, the, you know, the, the technology is available to do that. Or, you know, we live in a world where you can close the loop on that. But um so many um, manufacturers just don't and they don't um I, I don't know if that's because they maybe don't value the marketing function as strongly as other disciplines in the firm or or potentially um it's just not as um well developed right so i'm going to ask you a crazy question here but do you think that i mean you get marketing you've always gotten marketing from from what i can understand of your background but I think for some people, marketing seems to be a bit of a voodoo thing. Like they just don't really know how it all works. And so they're kind of scared of it. Do you think that's part of the problem? Uh, yes. Um, okay. I think that they don't, uh, they maybe, and, and therefore they don't feel like they're equipped to evaluate it. Um, uh, you know, and, and, uh, you know, an awful lot of manufacturers uh, feel like, like if we just build a good quality product and we service it well, well, that'll speak for itself. And, you know, there's some truth to that. It certainly will. doesn't mean that marketing won't add uh, uh, gasoline to that fire, however, if done properly. 
Mm -hmm. Okay, so are marketers, or rather manufacturers, using their websites to their, their maximum potential to, to market effectively? Well, you know, um, uh, I think uh, this is an area where an awful lot of manufacturers could uh, could stand to gain. I mean, if if we were to just pull up uh, uh, twenty uh, random manufacturing websites, and let's, even if they were companies that are say you know one hundred and fifty million to five hundred million in revenue or something like that, so significant size uh, firms, you know. Um, if we were to do that, we would find on those ten or twenty sites. Um, uh, well over half of them uh, would not have any search optimization at all. The, the site architecture, um, the on-page SEO, just some of the very foundational elements um, uh, that we've known to be foundational for proper digital marketing performance for you know, over a decade now, way longer than that, in fact. Um, you know, those elements aren't even in place, let alone... Um, finding ways to convert interest in a more um, uh, intentional way. So, so if we were looking at that same sample of sites, in addition to not showing any degree of search optimization or digital savviness in that respect, uh, chances are the only point of, of conversion that would be available in most of those sites would be like a contact us form or something of that sort. Mm -hmm. uh, so something that's very down funnel, if you will, um, and, and does not capture people at a time when they're actually able to be influenced and, and, and nurtured into a sale. So, it, um, uh, so, so no, uh, manufacturers aren't using their websites typically to their maximum potential. Um, and, uh, and this is at a time when we know uh, B2B buyers uh, now more than ever are doing a huge chunk of the research online before they ever reach out and talk to a salesperson. And, and that was the case before uh, our current reality in the world around COVID, and it's certainly going to be the case after. Mm -hmm. So in this ever-changing landscape, how is B2B buying changing? And how can you keep that B2B marketing fresh to meet those changes? Well, it's changing in a lot of ways. Um, the people that are a par part of it are, are changing. Um, we know that there's a generational shift in the B2B buying community. They're, you know, uh, people are retiring and they're being replaced by folks in their 30s with uh, very different points of view about how uh, information ought to be gathered and uh, um, how they ought to interact with suppliers. Um, uh, uh, beyond that, the uh, uh, buying process uh, is uh, has gone from being an individual decision to being very much a team sport. And we know that that buying committee is getting larger and larger and larger. Um, Gartner has probably done the most research on that, and um, and they've seen a lot of uh, examples where um, not only is the buying committee getting larger across most of these organizations, but as it gets larger, uh, their propensity to buy, to buy nothing goes up. The safe decision to just choose to do nothing um, uh, becomes more and more common. Uh, so it's a you know it's a challenging world i think for a, a lot of b two b marketers and b two b sellers so how do they meet that uh, you know how how do they kind of address that and 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 ensure that they're um that what they're doing from a marketing and sales perspective is kind of uh, changing or moving with the times well um uh, one is uh, being cognizant, frankly, of just the points that I just raised. But then the other is, what are you doing? At, what level of your marketing and sales budget are you actually carving out uh, for those experiments, for those initiatives that you 
um, are, are channeling towards this new buying reality to see if um, if you can make it stick. I mean, an awful lot of uh, manufacturers are, you know, if you look at their marketing budget this year, it'll look exactly the same as it did the previous year and it's exactly the same as it did the year before. And it's all going to the same stuff, the same trade shows, the same things. Mm-hmm. And uh, they aren't always the most uh, inclined for marketing experimentation. Yeah. You talk about, you know, there's no change. And then you talk about almost this paralysis on making a decision. So you don't bother to make a decision and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I would think that in the past, um, a lot of buyer decisions were made based on, um, you know, relationships, the person who was selling you, you knew them, you trusted them, you'd always bought from them. And so you continue to buy from them. That's completely changed. So now, you know, we have these things called buyer personas. I mean, do buyer personas actually work when you're trying to figure out who to market to and how to do it right? Uh, yeah, I, I, I've, uh, I can speak from a lot of experience in this of having done it wrong in the past. I can tell you that. So I've, I've tried. So uh, I, I think there, there's two different things in your comment, though, I would say the relationship selling dynamic. Um, and, and personas, yes, there's some connectivity, but one isn't necessarily a replacement for the other. But right. um, uh, I have seen uh, content strategies for a variety of different types of brands over the years that have, been, um, have evolved without the North Star of a buying, buyer personas uh, that have been documented. And, and it's interesting because over time, even the best marketers and the, the best content teams, if, if they didn't have that buyer persona uh, really well articulated, um, they you know they end up drifting. Um, your your content strategies end up not being as focused on your buyer over time. You kind of ter- look in the rearview mirror after twelve or eighteen months. You're like, geez, it doesn't seem like you know we're not you know why isn't our uh, our blog strategy really driving the 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 organic search uh, traffic that we had intended how come it doesn't seem to be resonating as we're posting those posts um uh and promoting them in, in our social feeds uh, you know why is the you know the mql quality not quite what we would have expected and then you turn around and say yeah it's because it's drifted away from from not having that that personas and North Star. So I've seen that in our early days as an agency when we frankly try to do that type of work without using buyer personas. Um, And uh, I've learned from from that that um, they they serve an invaluable uh, function. They really do keep you grounded in what you're trying to accomplish. And I think if buyer personas are done right, they don't just have demographic and psychographic information to help you kind of get in the, 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 the suit of clothes, if you will, of your customer, but they, they also ought to identify uh, what are the marketing triggers that folks are experiencing as they um, uh, are kind of going through their day-to-day that lead them to actually seek out your brand and to seek out the types of solutions that you provide? Um, And what are the objections that those personas often have in the early stages of of that type of exploration? If you can identify that as part of your personas, that can really help inform your entire kind of front end of your marketing approach. Okay, so I'm going to ask you questions about developing these buyer personas. are they based on the buyer you want to have, the buyer you currently have, and how many personas should you really have that you're targeting? 
That's a really good question. Um, <laughs> and it's a good question for a variety of reasons. One is, is that from a fueling a content strategy perspective or what have you, I always say that the act of coming up with buyer personas is the act of writing a check that your content strategy needs to cash in a way. So, you know, yes, you can have all these different personas. And I had one um, uh, former client who insisted I think it was 23 different personas at the end of it. Uh, and I'm like, you know, if you, at the end of the day, if you wanted us to articulate uh, various nuances across these 23 personas, we can do that. But I know for a fact that as a marketing organization, you do not have either the money or the wherewithal to actually create content in any way that's customized or bespoke to those that many different personas, especially when you think of creating content at an awareness stage, a consideration stage, decision stage, and even post-sale. So, okay, we have four or five different types of content that we need to be creating. So five different types of content, 23 different personas, five times 23. It's like, yeah, good luck with that. So um, I, I, I think that you ought to be looking at, um, uh, uh, at the, the typical buying committee that you're encountering. I do think that if you're in the situation, uh, I'm working with a client right now as an example, who, you know, they, if they look at their existing customer base, they're looking to move a bit up market from that, right? Um, and as they're looking to move a bit up market, uh, in their early indications of that, they've seen that the buying committees are slightly more complex and, uh, um, and there's a few other people at the table. And they've also found that getting access to the C-suite as they move higher up is getting more and more difficult. So, um, yeah, you ought to be taking that into account of kind of where you want to go, not just where you've been uh, as you're creating those personas. Uh, um, and I would tend to uh, at least create top level personas for each member of the buying committee that you typically encounter and then whittle it down from there as to what's really important. You usually have a lead economic buyer, um, uh, kind of a lead research uh, person, and then one or two people that could be the nail in the coffin of the deal. Um, so, you know, you, can, you ought to be able to narrow it down from like an eight or nine person buying committee down to the two to three personas, maybe four personas that truly, truly matter. Um, and I think you ought to try to do that, knowing that, um, uh, knowing that uh, perfect is really the enemy of, uh, of, of good in this instance. So, you, you know, does that make sense, Janet? Yeah, actually it does. It sort of, it really clarifies it nicely uh, because I've actually tried to work with buyer personas before and I've been so confused about what I'm trying to achieve, but you just cleared that up for me. So thank you very much. It's uh, yeah. And I think um, people would probably be well served to do a better job on those core personas rather than worrying about doing a, um, uh, half-ass job, if you will, on the, uh, on the, uh, on all of them, uh, they'd be better off to really dive into, okay, what are those marketing triggers? What are the objections that my salespeople are seeing? Uh, as a marketing team, maybe does some ride-alongs or listens in on sales conversations or what have you, whatever the dynamic might happen to be. Um, you know, really try to get inside the, the, the skin of those prospects. And, and um, uh, I think you'd be well, better served to do that than try to say, geez, you know, have we really gotten our hands around all 23 of the people that might touch this deal? Right. Okay. I want to move on to just sort of comparing B2B marketing and B2C. And 
clarify here or just let me know, I mean, are, are many manufacturers approaching their B2B marketing with that sort of B2C mindset because that's what they've been targeted with or are like, what are the differences there? So we are clear on the, how the two look different. Um, I, you know, look, you do see some kind of, uh, uh, shall we say kind of B2C uh, thinking coming to life in B2B often in kind of e-commerce environments and things of that sort. There's been an awful lot of discussion in the last few years about how, um, uh, B2B buyers have B2C expectations in an e-commerce environment. And that's certainly um, somewhat true. I think you can overag that pudding a bit. Um, uh, you know, it's not, uh, I think most people are pretty uh, smart and they know that it, I, I kind of associate it to like a, a company car. Um, like, so, so for instance, uh, I used to work, uh, at a electric utility for a while. So, you know, we had all those, uh, you know, uh, uh utility trucks, like for, for going up power poles and whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. So those trucks have a lot of different functions, a lot of specialty functions. Um, so the, the linesman, uh, that, uh, that drives that, uh, that, that vehicle through the day, well, then they, when they drove to work that morning, they, maybe they drove their, their Toyota Corolla. Um, well, those the, 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 you know, they function in fundamentally the same way. The pedal's on the right, you know, the brake is there, the steering wheel is somewhat the same, turn signals are located somewhat similarly, shifting, et cetera. But then, of course, there are some pieces that are unique to that more business-oriented vehicle that is the utility truck. It has the, the boom on it and those various other controls out back, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, I think that that's the case in B2B versus B2C e-commerce is that people know that in B2B buying, sometimes it's different. You need purchase orders and things of that sort. Um, sometimes the information that you're looking for is different. So some of the experience, like the pedals on the right and the brake is there and the steering wheel is there, some of, like some of those basic things about that experience between B2C and B2B ought to be the same. And then you ought to recognize that there's going to have to be some, some key differences. Now, that's on the e-com side. Um, the biggest kind of difference, I think, when you move beyond that from B2B versus B2C for, is for most manufacturers, uh, most B2B marketers, is they're dealing in a situation where they do not have an unlimited top of funnel. Um, in B2C marketing, you know, if I'm trying to sell wine, there's, in, in some ways, I'd be well served to think that there's an unlimited number of people out there that can buy wine because mm -hmm. fundamentally there are right yeah and they buy a lot of it it's a, it, you know you, you buy today you drink tomorrow you buy the next day so um uh, that uh, that process is very different than if you are a, um, a manufacturer who only sells to uh, automobile makers as an example right. um, yeah. so there's so many manufacturers out there that have a total addressable market that is in the hundreds or maybe thousands of firms that can possibly buy from them, but it's certainly not in the tens or 20 of thousands or hundreds of thousands, right? So those marketers who have this kind of B2C mindset uh, and they're trying to apply it into B2B, that leads them down the road of of thinking that inbound marketing is going to be their savior as an example. And all they need to do is um, 
put some conversion content up on their site, optimize for, for search, and uh, the, you know, everything's going to come into that top of funnel and convert down. And that's a very flawed approach if you have a small total addressable market. If you have a small total addressable market, you need to be flipping that funnel on its head. You need to be starting from a point of view of knowing exactly who you want to speak to from a point of view of knowing exactly who are the firms that can buy from me. And then how do I target my message to them and get it in front of the buyers that exist in those firms? rather than just trying to uh, be optimized for a keyword term in the greater web. Mm -hmm. That makes sense? Yes. And hence, that's where your buyer personas come into play. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So you have an ideal customer profile. We know the type of firm that we want to target. So we have our firmographics um, in a B2B context. You want to know how many employees uh, typically, uh, what's the typical revenue size, industry, et cetera. And from that firmographic foundation, what's that buying committee that I typically see when I'm into a firm that meets that ICP? And then uh, I can then uh, target my messaging and marketing to those personas and titles that are in my target organizations. Hmm. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about the elephant that's in the room right now. How do you think B2B marketing is going to be changed by the coronavirus? And are businesses going to be trying harder to source products more locally? What do you see? I mean, I know it's early days for us right now, but I mean, you must be thinking about this. What do you, what do you think is going to happen? Yeah, uh, I, I've got to say, I, I probably, like a lot of folks at this stage in the game, um, I haven't been thinking a lot about how the coronavirus is going to impact the business as much as I've been thinking about how it's going to impact the, just people in general. So mm-hmm. this has been a, 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 it's good to kind of get my head out of that for a minute, just think about it from a business perspective. I, I, I think... Um, uh, one of the uh, one of the curiosities coming out of this is, I mean, we're going to, I mean, if crystal ball is so uh, dangerous a game right now, but you know, are we at looking at six, eight weeks, maybe longer, of people uh, working fully remotely um, uh, and um, getting used to not just uh, as within their own organizations working in that context, but uh, collaborating with others in that way. We've had an awful lot of, uh, you know, an awful lot of the marketing and sales process has moved online or via phone, et cetera, over the last number of years. Uh, But in manufacturing in particular, there's still a big push towards those relationships and um, that relationship sales model, um, outside salespeople that, go and meet with customers face to face and see the white of their eyes and do the grab and grin, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, we're just living in a world right now that does not um, uh, facilitate that. And um, I, I wonder if that this may be the, the thing that helps folks kind of in some way move to that other reality that they've been a bit hesitant to. I mean, I've worked with an awful lot of manufacturers who, uh, they, they've even stood up inside sales organizations, uh, sitting kind of beside their outside sales as a way of a, a bit of an experiment, right? But without kind of changing fundamentally how the outside sales apparatus is happening. But now they're going to be forced to have to look at how does that change. I think too that when I I think about it, I know that manufacturers are having trouble getting 
uh, things that they need from suppliers that are in, you know, faraway places where things have to be transported and whatnot. There's been talk about um, them sourcing more locally. And um, I'm just wondering if you think that we're going to see that if borders are starting to be shut and ships are not going from port to port around the world, do you think people will start sourcing more locally? Well, maybe I'm more optimistic than that. I I, I think the global economy um, uh, can function in a global fashion without us having to see each other face to face. Um, so, uh, you know, even in the closing of the border between Canada and the U.S. that was announced uh, this week, um, you know, one of the key items mentioned is, of course, is that that's not to impact trade. That uh, right. Um, so I, I think the flow of goods um, and, and whatnot will will continue, and I think um, I think uh, even um, you know the professional services, et cetera, being delivered across borders uh, that will continue, and I think it may even increase because, of course, if you can't go outside your home, uh, does it really matter if you're talking to a service provider locally or one that's a thousand miles away? Um, can't go out and see them anyway it doesn't much matter does it that's true that's true can you actually share a story i want to go back to you know the b2b marketing approach and you've given us some really good tips on how to make it work um but i'm wondering if you have some stories that you can share about how it has worked really well or failed how some people's b2b marketing has failed spectacularly and you know give us some reasons why they actually did or didn't work I think probably the failure stories are more fun. Um, <laughs> oh, so, excellent. <laughs> uh, well, we, we're doing some work. So, you know, a lot of this is very uh, blocking and tackling from a digital marketing perspective. When I talk about uh, pay-per-click advertising, Google ads, um, you know, it's not like this is new. Um, but, man, it is an area where people can pay a really massive stupid tax um, because, uh you know, frankly, Google doesn't make the platform all that um, intuitive from a point of view of setting it up uh, correctly. Um, so you can, uh, if, if you have kind of a little bit of knowledge in that platform, it can be very, very dangerous. And uh, so we were doing some work for a manufacturer who shall remain nameless. Um, uh, and uh, they thought they had a bit of a paid search problem. They had been spending a fair bit on paid search and they weren't sure if it was uh, creating the return they were hoping for. To my earlier point in this show, of course, um, they didn't know if it was getting that return because they hadn't built up proper closed-loop analytics to do proper analysis of that. Right. So um, as we dug in, uh, we discovered that um, they had wasted somewhere in the neighborhood of about a million dollars a year for the last few years. Um, uh, So they just, it was a donation to Google. Um, The words that they were bidding on, the things that were happening in that account was just atrocious. And we ended up saving them that, um, uh, that amount, that, that spend um, dramatically (laughs) improving their AdWords performance. When you save a million bucks, it's pretty easy. Um, They fired a couple of the people responsible for that. Um, so save them those salaries as well. Um, uh, and in the process of doing that, we even found one of their comp- competitors that was doing something even more stupid. Um, they were bidding on a, ter- they, they were spending just over 90% of their paid search budget um, on a 
term associated with a Christian rock band. <laughs> oh my! Um, now, how they got there? I mean, you could you could you could see it. Like from this is from the outside looking in a bit, because obviously, to a, we don't have access to the competitors' AdWords account. We can just kind of see it from using tools like SEM Rush and other tools. But um, uh, yeah, um, so so it was kind of a bit of a double whammy. Not only did we see in this category somebody wasting like a million bucks a year, but then we saw somebody on the, one of their key competitors um, wasting hundreds of thousands of dollars in a year to capture traffic that was trying to find a Christian rock band. So um, I guess that's a, I guess word of the wise for manufacturers, um, you know, uh, just uh, putting somebody uh, junior in charge of digital uh, marketing because you think they know the internets these days, that is not a smart approach. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that that is a very good story. Thank you very much, Carmen. Um, can you actually leave us with some key takeaways or things to consider when doing B two B marketing that people might be able to get started on now, or even just simply start considering? Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to my uh, point about account based marketing. I think for most B two B organizations, they ought to be taking an account based approach, and that means starting from identifying and knowing exactly what are, who are the, the companies that you want to speak with and sell to. And, um, and, and I, I know that sounds basic, but I meet an awful lot of B2B marketers every day. Then I say, oh, okay, well, uh, why don't you give me your target account list and we'll start from there. And they say, my what? Hmm. Um, and, 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 and literally that is the starting point from that target account list. Everything else flows. Um, so, Really, uh, my uh, uh, key takeaway to B2B marketers is to uh, really critically examine to what extent you've adopted this funnel thinking that uh, came to us from inbound marketing, which was around software as a service um, marketing more, more so than um, uh, what the B2B reality is for most manufacturers. So, so many marketers out there are applying that kind of funnel methodology uh, blindly to so many B2B businesses where it just doesn't fit. And they need to flip that on its ear and start from identifying who it is we actually want to speak to, who it is we want to sell to, and then begin to deploy the account-based approaches that allow you to speak directly to them rather than just a, a spray and pray approach where your marketing is just going all over the place and you're hoping to capture somebody that's interested along the way. Wow. Okay. Carmen? Incredibly valuable conversation, I think, for many of the manufacturers out there. Thank you so much for sharing. Janet, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me, and stay safe out there. Yeah, and to you. Uh, I hope we'll get a uh, chance to talk again. I look forward to it. Carmen Fury is the co-founder of Kula Partners, and you can find him at kulapartners.com, and I'm sure you found some valuable information that you can uh, put to work right away. That is our show this week. Please check out our Twitter and LinkedIn feeds that are on our podcast page and subscribe and share this podcast with friends and colleagues through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and YouTube. The Make It Right podcast is brought to you by Kevin Snook, leadership advisor and author of the best-selling book, Make It Right, five steps to align your manufacturing business from the front line to the bottom line. Until next time, I'm Janet Eastman. Thanks for listening to Make It Right.